the absurdity of anxiety. I'm going to be moving through Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 22 through 34 today. Let's begin with just the first couple verses. I, I titled this, The Focus of Anxiety. What is the, what the focus of anxiety? Jesus said to his disciples, therefore, and I just have to stop at that word because this is a flow that I've broken up with a, a gap, okay? So last week we were in Reformation Sunday, we worked on John Owen. But the week before that, remember we, we learned about the building of bigger barns and the foolish rich man who decided to, to basically squander all of his abundance on himself. And Jesus has just finished saying, uh, you fool, for this very night your soul will be demanded of you and, and who will get all of these things you've stored up? They will go to another. So he says to his disciples now, he draws attention into his disciples and he says, therefore, and all of that is in the backdrop, with all of that abundance squandered in view, building a kingdom on this earth, what a waste that is. Now, live your lives with, with uh, the desire to be rich toward God, right? Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. And you hear the echo, really, of where he's been uh, in the previous passage. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions, nor does it consist at the level of food or clothing. Life is bigger than these things. And Jesus calls us out of anxiety. Now, some of the more difficult commands of Scripture are the ones that sometimes we fail to even acknowledge. These are commands, right? Be anxious for nothing. Oh, sure, okay, that's no problem. What? For nothing, Philippians 4? Really? Jesus gives us a command. Do not be anxious. Do not worry. Do not be afraid. How are we supposed to do that? How in the world could we ever do that? Well, he's going to give us a, all kinds of reasons and a foundation by which we can stand on to obey this command. He knows who we are. He knows our, our frame. He knows we are frail. We are weak. We are, we are not in control, and we are very much prone to this, right? We are prone to anxiety, to worry. It's interesting because the previous passage covetousness was the focus. The mantra of covetousness is, if only I had, or if only I could do this, or if only I lived here, if only, if only, if only. Now, anxiety says, what if? What if something bad were to happen? What if I were to lose all that I have gained? What if we miss our flight? What if when Ethan drives out of the driveway, some crazy lunatic runs into his truck. What if? What if? What if? What if today is the day that I die? How do you answer the what ifs? How do you respond to that? This, that can be a paralyzing issue, can't it? Sometimes they're subtle, and we can kind of just push it away. Hey, stop thinking about that. Focus on something else. Sometimes they're overwhelming and they, they just grab onto our hearts. We can't even sleep. The 
because we're worried about the what-ifs. We are called to honor God both in abundance and in this passage, just necessity as well. He knows our propensity to turn abundance into idolatry and necessity into idolatry, right? Food. We watch the Food Network. I confess my wife loves it. I abide it uh, on the way to football. Um, But we've seen numerous times where they're interviewing these chefs and they're like, "Uh, well, you know, tell us about how you got started cooking. Well, I'll just say this. Food saved my life. And I'm like, no, it didn't. No, it, I guarantee you it didn't. Now, cooking, like I see what they're trying to say. Like I was going down this path and I found something I love to do. The problem is, is that food or cooking or culinary pursuits can become an idol, right? Rather than just, Lord, give us our daily bread, you can become obsessed with food, whether in uh, too much eating of it, right? Gluttony, it's a sin. Too much focus upon it the bubbling of this or the taste of this or the palate and all of these things. If you have too little of it, it can be an obsession. And if you have too much of it, it can be an obsession. The same is true of clothing. I had an interesting experience. We hit the outlet mall, Jenny's birthday. We were down in Seattle, and then on the way back, we stopped at the outlet mall, and I love the Nike store. I, I just I love that place, and I've been thinking about this Jordan shirt that I had when I was Ethan's age and and hoping to find something similar and so we're in the Jordan section and this guy walks through and this dude head to toe Jordan clothes I'm talking tricked out he's got the expensive like $300 jacket with the big you know jump man on the back it's all kind of white and and just bam prominent and I was struck now I don't know this man He may be free as a bird, right? He may just really enjoy wearing Air Jordan clothes, or he may be a slave. He may be in there feeding an addiction of buying Air Jordan clothing. He had a whole shopping bag filled with Jordans. The shoes, the expensive ones, you know? And I thought, you know, that's an interesting thing. So I I don't feel like I was out of whack for wanting to buy a Jordan shirt, but I could be if I'm looking to that to give life, if I'm focused on it in a, in a way that is way overstated. You see, clothing can be something similar to food for some. I've talked with people who have had just this unbelievable idol of shopping and spending, even money they don't have. They just have to buy it. And then literally they're taking clothes just a few months later down to Goodwill. Some of them they've never even worn. Jesus is loving us with these words of caution and warning. Your life does not consist of food or clothing. Live for something better, both in abundance and in necessity. And then he takes us to these examples. He begins (laughs) with ravens, okay? Now, this 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 is fascinating. Who feeds the ravens, he asks. Verse 24, consider the ravens. Now, you've got to picture Jesus teaching here. He was an out-of-the-classroom teacher. They're probably out in the field, either sitting down and having some lunch or on the road walking. And I imagine a raven doing what ravens often do, squawking. 
annoyingly so, like loud. So he's teaching and he's like, hey, everybody, I have a prime example. I want to introduce to you Professor Raven. He will be your teacher now. Have you considered the ravens? They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. Yet God feeds them. You have to stop and think about this. Of all of the birds he could have chosen. I mean, ravens? Really? I mean, look at this guy. (laughs) When I see ravens, I think evil, like sorcerer type things. Like, you know, my pet raven sitting on my shoulder while I conquer the world, you know, and, and everything goes dark. Lord of the Rings type thing. The raven is the work of God's hand. The raven is not a farmer. He is not, you, don't, you don't see ravens driving tractors around town, do you? You know, building barns. A raven is a scavenger. It's a scavenger bird. And trust me, I have a small orchard in front of my house, a number of fruit trees, especially my apple trees this year, uh, and I gathered a flock of, of crows, we'll call them, I think. Uh, there was probably 30, 30 crows that found my trees, and they ravaged our fruit this year. First year that that's ever happened. I cr- we picked all the fruit, and they were still in our front yard picking at leaves and thinking it was apples. They ate my food. Who fed them? God did. God, I think, in his sovereign plan, chose this year to feed my apples to his birds to equip me to preach this sermon. (laughs) And if it wasn't for my neighbors, I would have had my shotgun. (laughs) They are scavengers, not farmers. Jenny and I were kicking around these verses as we're driving in, and we, we both witnessed this here in the road as we pass is a crow, and he's eating out of a McDonald's bag, okay? And he's pulling out food from a McDonald's bag, and you just stop and ask the question, how is it that God chose in that circumstance to feed that raven, that crow? Well, probably some high school punk ordered the McDonald's, ate his cheeseburger, his fries got cold, He's like, I'm just going to litter. I'm going to take the whole bag, chuck it out the window. So he did. And those fries spilled out. And God says, I'm feeding you. My bird, come eat up. That's the sovereign work of God. He ordains to feed the ravens. I couldn't help but show this picture. Here is a picture of a raven who scored far more than fries. He is down in the cheeseburger itself. Apparently, this happens a lot. Um, I was uh, dealing with a raven one time who literally took my entire egg sandwich right off the table, just flew in, gone. God chose to give the raven my breakfast. It's a fascinating case study. God has so ordained to feed scavengers in every way he chooses to do it. And, and it's not just randomness, because it seems like that to us. Oh, some kid just threw out his, you know, fries, and then some random bird, oh, cool, fries. No, God did that. 
That's God at work, Jesus says. He feeds the ravens. In fact, it shows up surprisingly in a couple different places, both in the psalm of praise to God. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. Who provides for the raven? God responds to Job in his great uh, rebuttal, and he says, when its young ones cry to God for help, who is it that provides for them? I do. I do. When they wander about for lack of food, I feed them. Hmm. Of how much more value are you than the birds, Jesus says. Now, this is an argument from lesser to greater. If, in fact, God's care is such that he feeds the ravens, how much more will he feed you? You you are of so much more value to God than his birds, and he feeds them. So don't worry. This This is a reason. This is a foundation to stand on. We lock eyes with a father who is able to provide for the birds that we would assume would just be be randomness. And and he says, you are of more value than those birds. He loves you. You're his children. He's going to take care of you. Now, let's talk about the inability of anxiety. The inability of of anxiety. Jesus goes on. I love how he just weaves example, uh, command, foundation, example, command, foundation. He just weaves it all like a little fabric here. Verse 25, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? What a fascinating thing. Now, if any of us could just decide, I'm going to take the days that God has ordained to me and extend them by one hour. That would be, to me, that's, that's not a small thing. That's kind of a big thing. That, that is a, a significant thing. Or, as some interpreters say, that span of life may, may mean inches, height. If you, you, who can add an inch to their height? You just wake up one day, you know what? I'm 6'2", I'd really like to be 6'3", done. And he says, if you can't do so small a thing as that, and we can't, just to be clear, why are we worried? This is, what's his point here? God can. <laughs> to, to God, that's a small thing. You think that's, that's hard for God? Hmm. The reality is that worry desires control but never delivers on it. That's what worry wants. It wants control. You find yourself anxious, fearful, worried when you confront situations out uh, uh, that you have no control over. You're out of control. You can't change them. You can't affect change. And so all we're left to do is just fear and worry and be anxious. fascinating. Worry will never give, but it will take. Worry will take. Worry is a thief, my friends. It will take from you more than just 
peace, right? It'll take peace from your life. It'll take sleep from your life. But it can take more than just mental peace. It can, it can have a, a physiological impact on your body. You can actually take hours off of your life with anxiety and worry. There's been all kinds of studies done. You can Google them. I don't have time to get into all of the impacts of stress and anxiety and worry, but I will say this. If you embrace worry and anxiety as a normal part of your life, you will ruin your health. You, you will have a, a devastating impact on your, on your well-being, holistically speaking, not just spiritually. Some of the most damaging uh, aspects of worry and anxiety is what they do to you spiritually because they begin to, to undercut your confidence in the God who is able. You try to take control from Him. And when you can't, and things don't go the way you hope, then you question Him. Or even worse, judge Him. Mm, worry's a thief. One of the most important gifts that God can give you is the conclusion of this. I am not in control, but God is. He, he will give you that gift. <laughs> Just think, this is, this is what's strange about worry and anxiety. God will so arrange circumstances in your life to bring you into contact with your lack so that you have no other option but to cry out for help to show you you are not sufficient in and of yourself. We cannot, we cannot, but he can. That's a gift of God. Sometimes we just assume that God wants us to have worry-free living, i.e. comfortable, predictable, everything goes according to plan, and we miss one of the greatest gifts, which is God saying, Watch me work when you can't, right? So God is a God who is sovereign enough, good enough, and big enough to weave in trials, to literally bring them into your life, to bring you to this place where you say, I need you. I can't do this. I got nothing left. I'm about to go down here. And then I look up and I find in him more than enough. Not in control, but God is. Think of all of the ways this plays itself out. In your marriage, in your parenting, in your workplace, in your own walk with God. Now, think about how many prayers you pray when you get to that place. Think of the worship God receives in our depending upon Him when He brings us to that place. Prayer is the expression of, I, I can't do it. I need you. Help. Save me. Deliver me. Comfort me. Hold me up. Now, let's consider the lilies. If I could get some some, uh, some help, I'd like to pass everyone a flower now for you to examine. So the ushers come and, and just part, start passing those out. Jesus wants us to consider the lilies. Since we're not out in a field and we can't see the wildflowers, um, 
we, we need a flower in hand for this really to work well. Who clothes the lilies? Let me read this for you. He wants us to, to consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet Jesus says, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. All right. We can just pass them back and forth down the aisles. Yeah, kind of like, uh, like communion or, uh, yeah, there you go. Even Solomon was not arrayed like one of these. Now, what I love about flowers is their incredible diversity. The creativity of God is totally on display in his uh, arranging of the flowers. Similar to the ravens, it's easy for us to look at the flowers and be like, oh yeah, they're doing what they always do. No. The flower does as God commanded and created it to do. This is the work of his hands, right? He has so created these flowers and the flowers now become our professor, our teacher. The flowers proclaim the providence of God, his handiwork, his care. Look close at those flowers and be reminded these are the flowers that God has clothed with precision. Now, consider some of these. In the background, this is uh, some wildflowers in Israel. Right around February, March, this is, this is what it can look like there in Israel, certain places. Here's another uh, field in Israel where maybe you can picture Jesus as he's teaching. Maybe he's pointing out across a field that looks like this. The wildflowers of, of, of Egypt, I mean uh, of Israel. Here's a closer up. Now, here's a few flowers that we know, okay? Let's look close. Look at that. Dahlia? Dahlia? Okay. Just take that in, right? Glory of God. The glory of God. Look at the precision. You see the little X's? Inside, look at the, the, I I love close-ups of flowers because that's where you see handiwork fingerprints of God. His fingers are never that small, but consider this. His precision. He placed each one exactly as he clothed it to be. Look at the colors arrayed. They look like diamonds. Can you see right here? Like, look at this. They look like diamonds mounted on a ring. That's God's flower. He did that. Now, stop and think this. How many flowers does God bring up from the ground that live, bloom, and fade, and never a human eye ever sees it? The bulk of the flowers on this earth, that's that's the reality, friends. I mean, when you go up into the mountain meadows and your eye gets to glimpse, you are looking into the corridor of something very sacred. It's holy ground. And how we think, well, the Lord made all these for us. Secondary. He made these flowers for Him, for His glory. They are doing what they were created to do. And they come up, and they blossom, and they flourish, and then a cow eats it. (laughs) Or the sun comes out, and it withers and fades. And this is part of my encouragement to you. That flower that you have, it's a beautiful flower. 
I want you to put it somewhere prominent in your home when you get home. And watch what happens to it. Give it a few days. And some of these, surprisingly, they're, they're lasting longer. But take them out of the water and just lay them there and watch how quick they fade. Hmm. That's his point. If God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, and truly in Israel it's like that, the, the green grass comes up early in the spring and the heat comes out and bam, it's brown. Those things are dead. They are gone. If he does that and clothes those flowers with such lavish beauty and provision, how much more will he clothe you? See what he's saying? This is the master teacher employing his own creation to show us the Father's love for us, his kids. We're concerned about what we're going to wear concerned about how we're going to pull it off financially. And, and Jesus is like, don't overemphasize that. God's going to supply your needs. Hmm. There is momentary versus eternal. The flowers will fade. You, your body, it's eternal. It's eternal. Worry is inversely proportional to our faith. When you think about it this way, he says, oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. To the extent that we worry, just to that extent, we are not trusting God and therefore we are sinning against him. So here's one way to spot a lack of faith in your life. Find anxiety, find worry. And you will spot it. And, and honestly, it's not even fair to call it. Here's one way to spot sin in your life. Find anxiety. Find stress and worry. And you will find sin. Now, I've been working on this sermon all week long. And I have had a uh, brutal experience with this. Because you just, you know, you go into a text like this and you're like, oh, worry. I don't, I don't feel stressed out. I'm, pro I'm probably okay with this. Wrong. I spotted worry, anxiety, stress, situations. This sermon was so convicting. And I guarantee you, if you have a heartbeat today, you need this sermon. You need these words. We begin to spot sin when we call it what it is. Worry, anxiety. It's sin, friends. It's disobedience to the command. It's unbelief. Oh, you of little faith. Why do you doubt? Hmm. How often when you're confessing sin to the Lord are you confessing the sin of anxiety and worry? Specifically, Lord, this day I mishandled this big time. I failed. I sinned against you by not trusting you. I locked in on this situation and I felt my entire body seize up in anxiety. I was anxious. I sinned. Will you forgive me? I confess it to you. I don't want that. I want to rest. I want to trust. I want to be at peace in this life. Hmm. Now, providence and peace. Speaking of, let's go to verse 29. Verse 29. Do not seek 
what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Okay, just pause there. Basically, he's telling us, don't live like unbelievers, right? The the Gentiles, all the nations, everyone out there, that may be how they live, but not you. Now, you don't have to live that way. Don't seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink. And some of us are like, okay, um, uh, wow, Costco membership, gone. Should we just not worry about preparing food or, or ever going to the mall? Is that what he's saying? The key here is the word seek. To seek is, is to set your heart on something in an inordinate way, to, to, uh, to overemphasize, to make it your main objective, the primary focus of your life. It should not be food. It should not be shopping, clothes, buying. It's not wrong to have a Costco membership, to be wise. In fact, the Lord calls us to this all over the place. We're to be wise. We're to work hard. It's not wrong to have a barn, right? Like we said a, f- a few weeks ago. The key is your heart. Where is my heart as it relates to food? How do I think about it? How do I prepare meals? How do I eat meals? Am I a slave of food or does food serve the purpose of my life to glorify God? I'm fascinated by uh, the verse in 1 Corinthians that Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So Sunday afternoon, when you leave here, that food that you eat for lunch is to be eaten to the glory of God, not to the slavery of food. This is, this is why fasting is helpful. Because you preach in fasting, you preach to your body that I need God more than I need food. He is my bread. He is my water. Hmm. Our Father knows our needs far better than we do. I think sometimes when we pray, we, we, we assume our needs. And God is bigger than our limited perspective. He, he sees what we truly need. Sometimes the greatest thing He can do for us is to withhold something to show us that we need it more than we really need it. We actually we need Him instead of that thing. Sometimes He will lovingly rip something from our hands, as I said just recently, to show us that we're looking to that instead of Him. And so we have to be more careful with this word need. This word need. I think of the word providence. I love this word. And I I did some work to try to write my own definition of this. You might jot this down. Um, The providence of God is is the work of an all-sovereign God. Now, sovereignty is not the same as providence. Sovereignty of God, you could say, is his right as creator, ruler, and and his power to to rule and reign. The, The rule and reign of God is his sovereign right and and reign. But the providence of God is really the function of that day by day. So providence is the work of an all-sovereign God done in the wisdom of God. So an all-wise God who is able and then works to fulfill his purposes, his goal for each of us, 
for history. And all of this is done to the glory of God and the good of his children. Right? So you, you wind all that together and you have this understanding of God's providing for his children. He is a providential God. He loves to provide for his kids. We were shopping at the outlet mall. Ethan was following me around, and I'm like, buddy, don't you want anything? Can I, can I buy you a shirt, or do you need anything? He's like, I got clothes. I'm good. Then I just was struck by my heart, right, in that moment. I wanted to buy him something. Eventually, he broke down and let me buy him an Adidas shirt. It felt good, right? I, I love this with our kids. I like to give them. I like to bestow on them, take care of them, make sure they have what they need. If I feel that way, imagine how much more your Father delights to care for you, to meet your needs, to meet you in your need with His abundance and His goodness. Instead of seeking food and clothing as the primary focus of our lives, uh, being obsessed with our necessities or obsessed with our abundance, we are to seek His kingdom, to seek His, instead seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. They're secondary. They're second. He's going to keep you alive. I think of the echo, really, of, of Jesus teaching His disciples to pray, right? What's primary in the prayer? Our Father in heaven, glorify your name. That's the first and overarching prayer. Hallowed be your name. That's the request. And the second is, your kingdom come. Oh Lord, may your kingdom come. Your rule and reign in my life and through me. Bring your kingdom. And may your will be done in my life and through me. Those three, they come out first. First and foremost, priorities of my existence. What's next? Oh Lord, I look to you for daily bread. I'm looking to you. That's a good thing in the right order, right? So we seek him for our daily bread, our daily bread. Sustain me with the food that I need to accomplish the first three requests that I make of you. And then we have to have this verse in Philippians 4. It's so helpful for us because it gives us an expression of where to go when we feel anxious. Don't be anxious. The Lord is at hand, right? Your Father is here. Christ is on the throne. You don't have to worry. Instead of being anxious, pray. Trust Him. Make your supplications with thanksgiving to God. The effect of this is that peace will come. <laughs> you will find peace when you lock eyes with Him. When you see who He is and you go to Him with your needs, you will be reassured. Hmm. It surpasses understanding. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's close with this. A generous father and an unfading future. These are some of my favorite verses in this entire section. Listen to how he says it. Fear not, fear not, don't be afraid, little flock. Four, key word. You might circle that in your Bible. Four, this is the reason. Four, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
So don't be afraid, even though you're a little flock, right? That's us, little flock. That describes all believers. Little flock, sheep. We're talking about lambs here, small flock. If ever we have a, a reason to be afraid, it's when we reckon with who we really are. We're weak, we're feeble, we're like the little snuggly, cuddly animal, not the lion, the fierce, you know, devourer of the sheep. We have reason to be afraid if we really understand how weak and feeble and, and vulnerable we are. And yet, he says, fear not. Because we're not, we're not on our own. We're his flock. He's showing us he's a shepherd. So we have a shepherd. We have a father. And he is a God who gives without uh, begrudging. He is, he is a lavish giver. He doesn't give with reproach. Oh, are you being weak again? Oh, you fearful little thing, really again? No, it's not like that. He comes as a shepherd, and he sees our weakness, and he brings us in under his care. He guards us, just as we read in Psalm 23. He leads our path. He leads us by the still waters. He, he quiets our soul. He feeds us. He provides for us. Our cup runs over. We're safe with him. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, that should blow our minds. He gives us the kingdom. The king, right, has been sent to accomplish that salvation. We, we have a king. He gives us the kingdom. I love it. Oh, what a father we have. This is how to still anxiety. What a father I have. I have a father in heaven. He knows, he's able, it's going to be okay. And then, oh, what a future we have. Think of this. He delights to give us the kingdom. That is unshakable, it is fixed, and it is coming. If I have no food, or I freeze to death because I have no clothes, guess what? I don't die. Because he has given me, not a piece of, but the kingdom. I have life. The food and clothing have absolutely nothing to do. It is eternal. And oh, what a freedom we have. If we understand these first two things, we will be set free then to do the remaining verses. Look what he says. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide for yourselves. Underline. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is a mind-blowing reminder again that this short life will issue into eternity, and things that we do now will carry eternal consequences. No one's cup will be empty or lacking but as we lay up this, this treasure in heaven, our capacity is, is grown. The, the cup is enlarged to receive more blessings, both here and then. And so, give. Give. Remember the goal of gain? Give. Don't be stingy. Don't hold back. 
This is all fading. But we're going to the kingdom. So you could say it this way. Kingdom living always has an eye for eternity. Kingdom living always has an eye for eternity. Our response this morning. Oh, I'm praying that these verses will be equipping us for this week even. The rest of this day. Do not be anxious. What are the things in your life you cannot control? Situations you have, relationships, challenges, heartaches. What is the cause of your deepest anxiety? Parents, kids. Be reminded that that anxiety is truly absurd. It is truly absurd when you realize who the Father is and what He's like. He's up there. He's got it. He's got it under control. He knows what He's doing. He's bringing about your best. Sleep like a baby. It's going to be okay. You know, sometimes when I struggle to fall asleep because I'm wound up and anxious and fighting sin, right? It's, it's, it's sin. I'm, I'm doubting him. I'm fearful. I picture myself, and this is weird, I know, but I, I picture myself like a tiny little dude right there in the massive hands of God. I curl up and I just say, Lord, I am in your hands. I'm going to sleep like a baby. Hold me tonight. I'm yours. You have all of this. Your hands are huge. I'm just this little thing right here. Your son. And it helps. I'm in his hands. You're in his hands. It's a song that I was reminded of as we think back about this. Uh, It's an old hymn. Day by day and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I have no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart, now where's my focus? Right? Look at where my focus is. My Father's heart is kind beyond all measure. And He's the one who gives unto each day what He deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure. He mingles toil with peace and rest. He's the God of all sovereignty. He's, he's providential over all. And he's at work. And so friends, would encourage you as you fight anxiety, the sin of anxiety, focus on your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are so good to us. We're so grateful for your grace and for your comfort when we are so keenly aware of our insignificance, our powerlessness, our weakness, our inability to control our lives or to change situations that stress us out. I thank you, Father, that you are in control. It is such a ground of our confidence. It is one of the greatest reassurances of our lives that you are truly sovereign and that you in providence are at work in our lives. We thank you for the way that you provide, for the way that you protect, for the way that you clothe. Remind us about the ravens. Let the teachers of the flowers be our professors today and help us to delight in you and trust you 
and believe that you truly are at work accomplishing your best in our lives. Father, we give praise to you ultimately because of the peace that we know through Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we don't have peace with you. We're still at odds. And so we, we, we lock eyes with Jesus, our Savior, our hope, our joy, and we know this peace only through him. You are our Father in this way. Thank you for the love you've given through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.